your ears do not deceive you listeners back again with episode three of the podcast today we are literally getting down to business i am joined by matt tremblay who is part of the business development team here and also the chief operating officer at caliber the research company uh, just down the road which is of course now paired with scripts now this discussion is great because it really sheds light on how a potential compound or technology makes its way from an academic lab into a viable business opportunity in the industry. So let's get into it. We join Matt as he explains what this process entails here at Scripps and how he took on this role. It's actually a relatively new role for me here at Scripps. So I joined, um, I took over the group basically in November of last year. And that came out of this affiliation with Caliber, which is, I know, another topic we can get to, but it's all kind of related. So Caliber kind of represents another way of thinking about uh, translational research and business development kind of as a paired set of objectives. So how can we guide research and take it down a path where there's more value creation for the institute that can be reinvested in basic research, etc. But then all the while of, of mapping out that research plan, thinking about how that creates business opportunities. And so that's really kind of the thesis of Caliber. So after we affected the affiliation with Scripps, the idea was to create a unified business development function across the two organizations that would take care of all of the collaborations, new funding opportunities um, outside of federal grants, and, and out licensing. Um, what do we do on a day-to-day basis? We're basically surveying all of the technology across Scripps getting an intimate understanding of what's been done, but then also feeding back to folks, you know, here's the direction that we think you could take this in. Cool. So how does one decide uh, where there is opportunities and and who might be interested? Are you constantly in contact with different leaders uh, in this industry? Are you watching the trends and the directions of of certain yeah. things. So that, that's a delicate art. So we have, um, just to give you a sense of the scope, we've got 10 people um, in my group that are, say, eight of them are based at Scripps and two of them are based at Caliber, but we function as kind of a multidisciplinary team. Um, and I would say at least half of those folks are very seasoned, sophisticated people that are, you know, sort of like finger on the pulse of like the, the community at large. So when there's a you know, there was a big CAR-T cell company that was just acquired by Gilead the other day, which is, you know, one of the, um, uh, one of the bigger biotech um, companies, public biotech companies, um, and that was a huge, you know, news, and we have a CAR-T program, and that, you know, impacted and triggered a series of discussions internally, you know, how does this impact um, our future development for this technology, um, creates new outreach opportunities we should we should ping Gilead to see if they're interested in an accessory technology, et cetera. I would say, you know, keeping up to date on that is important. That sets the context. Um, but we're talking to the PIs, you know, so each of those group the folks in my group are, you know, assigned to certain projects. And so we're talking to the, the, you know, the faculty about, you know, they have a technology that they've disclosed through an invention disclosure and going back to them and saying, you know, here's where we think like the real opportunity is for your technology based on what we know of the landscape, the business landscape. Um, do you have more data that supports <laughs> this dimension or could you generate more data? Usually they're pretty excited to get any kind, you know, because you might say, well, they don't want to be told what to do. They're usually pretty excited if there's a path forward for them to, 
you know, impact patients or get more research funding or both, they're usually pretty receptive to that kind of feedback. So when you're interacting there with the faculty, I know this is very broad, but what do you deem something to be of, of commercial value? What are yeah. you looking for? For better or for worse, we've been fairly skewed toward therapeutics. So there's a number of other, so there's, you know, um, enabling technologies like chemistry that might be, you know, um, creating new ways to manufacture. We deal in that and we transact those, but they aren't really an emphasis for our development. Um, diagnostics is one that we are starting to understand better, but hasn't been an emphasis. So really, you know, drug candidates or pro, you know, technologies that could lead to drug candidates where you could impact a disease and create new medicines has really been the main theme. And the reason for that is simple, just that that's really what the market, where, where the biggest market commercial opportunities are, and not just commercial opportunities, but that's, that's where you're going to impact patients kind of in the first degree, you know, versus a diagnostic is sort of second degree impact. Do you see that landscape changing perhaps more towards diagnostics, um, given the big economic impact of uh, healthcare on the country and all across the Western world? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think that's, that's something that, um, again, I'm kind of like pretty open about our bias, and I think we, we need to learn more about diagnostics and where Certain diagnostics, I think, are becoming more commodities, and those are things that maybe we don't want to focus a lot of time on. On the other hand, there's you know cutting-edge diagnostics where you're actually um, you're getting to patients earlier. You know, patients with certain types of cancers being able to um, better characterize um, patients at an earlier stage and get them customized therapy or so-called precision medicine. Um, I think that is something we definitely want to pay more attention to. Yeah, this precision and personalized medicine thing, I, yeah. I think is huge. It's going to be interesting to see how that develops. So thinking about how some kind of uh, technology or intellectual property gets developed and taken on by industry, when do you think it's appropriate for something to be allocated or um, hypothesized that it would be mm-hmm. good as part of an existing company versus maybe a spin-off company um, yeah. in itself? Yeah, so this is this is one of the major, um, I would say, paradigm shifts, or at least that we're aspiring to have as a paradigm shift with the the caliber relationship with Scripps is to try to ask and answer more of the critical questions um, before we out license things to other companies. Um, so you know, quote, you know, internally mature the programs further. That's a, a thing that creates value, but it also requires resources. So we can come back to that. But in terms of who the target audience is, um, that depends on the stage of the intellectual property and how matured it is. Mm-hmm. The typical spin-out company where it's maybe just an investor and an entrepreneur or something that's just an investor, they're willing to accept a high degree of risk, but you're, um, you're giving up a huge amount of value um, for them to accept that risk. And it's understandable. You know, they're putting in money on something that has some uh, major liabilities associated with it. Our, our plan is to kind of take more of that risk on, on ourselves. We feel that, in general, our faculty and our, and our staff will be best positioned to answer those key questions be, rather than handing it off and having someone else de-risk it. So why not do that first and then hand it off to you know, a partner who is more risk-averse but is you know, going to allow more value to accrue to us. And the, the sort of quintessential partner there is like a big pharma partner, mm. so like a Pfizer or a BMS or a Merck. 
they're going to want to see something that's very close to entering patients or if not already tested in patients. Um, that takes a lot more work and investment on our part, but once you get there, the value that will accrue to us, not just financial value, but also they'll take on that project and they'll be really motivated to move quickly on that project. And so um, that's something that can't be underestimated. So there's, there's obviously going to be a, a higher financial value placed on that, but we've had experiences where we've um, licensed a molecule to a big pharma at a very early stage because of their decision-making processes, they basically sat on it for hmm. a year and a half. And they were trying their best, but their best really wasn't set up to kind of think about the challenges that are at that stage of development of a molecule. Whereas if you give them something that's already shown to be safe in humans, and what they have to do is you know expand that to 10,000 patient trial, that's what they do best in big pharma. Sure. So that's our model, is to shift our target audience from opportunistic you know investors more toward people who do drug development but who just need more de-risking done on the part of the originators of the IP. Sure. So once you have that licensing in place what is the relationship there between Scripps and that company? What is, is there a certain funding situation that occurs as that continues? There's a whole spectrum of different um, types of interactions that can take place. The, the typical one that I think people are fond of would be to license some technology, have as a separate component, but it's part of the overall negotiation, some funding coming back into the PI's lab who originated that technology. And then usually under that funding agreement, then the, the, the licensee of the technology will kind of get access to like improvements of that technology that come from their funding. And so that's a pretty typical relationship. Um, especially for earlier stage um, technology where the person who's licensing it knows that they need the mm. Scripps faculty to continue to be part of it because there's some serious unanswered questions. And so that, that you know, preempts the model that I described before, which is, well, you know, why not kind of do that all internally and then out-license it? As we have more mature intellectual property, like if, like if we have uh, clinical data, we have a whole package of data around that, that changes the nature of, of that transaction and it becomes more like an acquisition. So you can have, because you know so much about the IP that you could you know, simply you know, sell this to an acquiring entity for, for a larger sum of, right. of money and probably be available to them through some kind of like joint steering committee or something, but there may not be an ongoing commitment. So we could then redirect our you know, human capital to like other projects. So maybe I should have asked this at the start, but how did you get into this? Is your background more in science and then you kind of veered off into this or were you more yeah. on the business track and wanted to apply it here? No, I actually, I, I have no, I have no um, formal training or really any business doing business. Uh, I, I'm trained as a chemist, PhD in chemistry, um, came out to work for Pete Schultz uh, as a postdoc to learn about drug discovery and biology. And then, like I mentioned, when we started Caliber, um, I actually started as a principal investigator, just running a group of um, kind of chemical biologists. And then Caliber was a startup environment, so there was you know a handful of us doing everything initially. And um, I just kind of took on more and more diverse um, responsibilities and became chief operating officer. The, the interesting thing for kind of the Scripps audience is just that um, you know, so Pete, Pete Schultz has been my mentor for 10 years. I'm, I work really closely with him. Um, he's obviously spawned, you know, literally hundreds of 
scientists, many of them, you know, really high-profile, you know, mentees. Um, and I think there's probably a lot fewer of us who were mentored by him in the business world, um, but he's actually has a very strong business acumen and very strong business instinct that that isn't, you know, financial or transactional, but is just kind of a basic level of understanding how to integrate really interesting technology with business opportunities. And that was something that I wouldn't have expected, but I feel like I, I kind of took from him a different dimension than many of the people who've worked under him have right. taken. Yeah, so it was really that mentorship that kind of allowed you to move laterally then away from, not wholly away from the science, but more into yeah, the business into kind of in the startup. business and, and strategy. And, and I think, um, you know, one, one thing that's great about Pete is he really will empower people who he thinks can, you know, maybe he doesn't totally think they can do it, but if he'll, he'll sort of like take it on faith that someone can take on more responsibility and he tends to um, empower people and, you know, let them make their own way. So I was, I was a beneficiary of that. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of encouraging because like many people, I often wonder, you know, if you're going to go into that world, whether you need to have, you know, additional kind of separate business experience uh, yeah. alongside the science or whether you can just kind of slowly get involved with that once you uh, progress. Yeah, I, would, I, I think that, you know, if you have the opportunity to learn on the job, which sounds cliche, um, that's probably better than, you know, going back and getting an MBA or something like that. The problem or the rate limiting factor is that not many people have the opportunity to learn on the job and not have it be like if you mess up then you lose your job. So I was in a unique position where I was allowed to, you know, learn and, and you know play around with different concepts and, and um, make it work. And I've hired a lot of people into my group and I usually tend to try to hire scientists and I don't care so much whether they have an MBA or, or you know whether they have specific experience with business. Um, and I look more for kind of a plasticity in the way they think about things and right. But the underlying science is kind of the critical factor to begin yeah, with. Yeah, that's the part of the conversation that if you can't hang with the room when you talk about the underlying quality of the program or the asset or whatever you're talking about, then it really becomes difficult to be part of that conversation. Makes sense. It must be quite rewarding as well. It sounds like you get to work on lots of different uh, projects doing yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about scripts. Um, you know, Caliber was a very focused you know, startup company mentality, and we have, you know, eight or ten programs that we were all highly focused on, remain focused on. And Scripps is just a whole nother, it's like, you know, leaving the solar system and then going into the galaxy. And there's just so much more to look at um, and absorb and then try to take action on that it's a little bit daunting. But I think what we've, we've taken kind of a process-oriented approach where we just, you know, focus on a handful of things. They may not be the absolute best things, and we're not claiming that we haven't missed things, but we're just trying to show people that the business development group can actually enable the research, not just by sort of being an administrative office that transacts your patents at the end of your grant term or something, but actually like works with you and like suggests experiments you could do to make them more valuable. And Yeah, speaking of uh, being out in the galaxy, unless scientists here have been living under a rock or maybe living in their, their lab, they would have seen that Scripps was recently named the most influential organization yeah. in the yeah. Nature uh, Innovation Index. So what is it that makes Scripps so successful? I mean, was this expected or was, was this a surprise with all you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the impact is um, almost separate from, from the reason why. I think the impact is tremendous. I mean, it just 
it solidifies in the eye. From from my perspective, I care about you know the the partner organizations who see that and see you know in any deal negotiation or business discussion, there's there's a premium placed on working with scripts. So um, and that's always beneficial to us, whether it's just you know more research funding or just you know um, tighter timelines on which the partner has to deliver. You know they're they're deliverable. So I think it, it inures to the benefit of the Institute, you know, tremendously, not just, hey, you know, you can, the local community sees this or the national community sees this, but it actually has a material impact on research funding and all the things that make the Institute robust. Why is it true? I think, you know, one explanation that I have um, is, you know, Scripps has taken a very focused approach. It's all very biomedical, you know, research focused, at least in terms of the the impact of the research that happens here, the biology, the chemistry, you know, even the, the chemical method development kind of benefits a drug discovery biomedical type of trajectory, you know, versus having a place like a university where, you know, the statistics are going to be integrated across the computer science department and all these other things. So I think I find that to be interesting and it's, you know, it's like some of the great institutes and universities that have been engineering focused or, you know, math physics focused, um, Stanford Research Institute or MIT or places like that, that I think have the equivalent high rankings in their areas of focus. So, I mean, I see Scripps as kind of a, a really lean, you know, highly acutely focused on biomedical research impact and, and I think that's what stimulates the, the innovation metrics, you know, that come out of that research. Yeah, it must be great. I mean, surely it, it doesn't just kind of pique the interest of um, potential companies, but also reflects on future federal funding as well, because they mm-hmm. see how well Scripps is doing and how well this this can kind of impact the... Yeah, yeah, no, federal funding and, uh, you know, philanthropy, um, you know, folks who want to uh, bequeath uh, funds in their will, or even ideally, you know, while they're, while they're living and, you know, put their name on a building or something. I mean, they don't want to do that at a place that's modestly ranked or is of questionable impact. They want to do that at a place that's high impact that feels like it's going to be around forever. So I want to just circle back around to the interactions with principal scientists and and PIs on how to kind of develop their intellectual property and advice you give them. So what kind of salient points would you give to scientists that potentially have some intellectual property that could be commercialized and maybe some of the problems that that happen during that process? Well, I think... um... You know, people tend to naturally be thinking a lot about, you know, the way that they've approached the problem, and they may consider their um, peers as being people that they run into at technical conferences and things like that who are oftentimes taking the same approach. And so I think one thing that's often missed is, even though there's maybe brilliant research and insights underlying that, there's only a subset of those things that actually can be patented and exploited as products. And that's just like, that's the the part that we deal in, you know, people call it the dark side or whatever. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of insights that are, they aren't relevant for intellectual property exploitation. So thinking about um, who are your comparators and against what background do you have to differentiate if you have a new finding, um, a new piece of intellectual property. And that's where I think we, we need to help folks because they, they immediately think of their peers in their scientific capacity. And that's not always where it's often not where you have to think about in terms of um, your comparators. It may be at a drug company or it may be another researcher who 
appears to be in a different field because they're taking a different approach. But if you're addressing the same unmet medical need, the same patients, then those are the folks against which you have to differentiate. The, the other point, I would say there's really two points, that and the other is understanding what are the killer experiments um, that need to be done to prove out that this is a, is a viable piece of intellectual property that could you know, be developed into a product versus being developed into a nature paper or being developed into a grant renewal, which are all you know, very valid outputs as well, but they tend to be different ways of thinking. And so a lot of times, in order to get license or funding, you know, you're going to have to repeat that animal model with more than n equals three. You're going to have to repeat it three times. People want to see it in the therapeutic dosing mode instead of the... So there's things that are not all that glamorous that have to be done. Are there any uh, issues over publishing possibly sensitive information? Yeah, that, that comes up a lot. I would say it, it, puts, it keeps the business development group on our toes um, because... And we totally recognize this is the ecosystem we live in. Um, the faculty need to publish in order to get more funding, to repeat the cycle. But what it does is it prompts us to have to you know, license the technology or at least to file a patent on it um, at an earlier stage than we would probably prefer to. And certainly earlier than like a biotech company or a pharma company would do with the equivalent technology. So it, it starts the patent clock earlier, which we can get into, but um, it also starts the patent costs coming in, and it just starts this whole commercial cycle that puts pressure um, to license the technology um, as soon as possible. And that's so you can sort of then see why historically technologies are out-licensed at an earlier stage. So what we're trying to do is find ways to make everybody happy, get some more funding that might allow you to get a richer data package. A lot of times then the faculty may be okay to delay a publication because they know they can get a more robust publication and then at the same time mature the intellectual properties. So does that mean that you're having personal or group meetings with investigators to find out about all of their work if you're you know, not going to see it in a publication first and you might yeah. need to get your, your foot in the door earlier? Exactly, yeah. We're, we're, we're looking at every... so and Anything that's that's published, um, we'll see first, and ideally we um, would see it, you know, months ahead of time and have a chance to work with them on, you know, perfecting a patent application before they publish it, and we get a mix of both. There's a lot of folks who know to give us a six-month, you know, head start on, they, so they'll do what's called an invention disclosure form, which is kind of almost like a, an abstract of a publication with some key data to give us a heads up on how to formulate a patent strategy, how to formulate a licensing strategy. Then we also get a lot of, you know, here's the manuscript, um, submitted it three weeks ago, got an accelerated review from JAX, and uh, it's going online next week. So you guys need to file a patent application this week. And we do that too. I mean, we, we will do that, and we do that all the time. Um, fortunately, the folks who tend to have crafted their research toward kind of a commercial outcome, they are the ones that tend to give us more time because right. they understand how it works. And so it's a little bit of a self-correcting um, situation there. Sure. Yeah, I could foresee events where scientists want to just get their work out because maybe a competitor's working on it and then they come to you last minute and say, oh, well, you know, if you're interested in this being commercial, then yeah. can you do it last, right, right. last minute? Yeah. The thing that I, I always um, try to drive home to the the folks in my group are just, you know, what we owe the, the faculty is a really fast turnaround time on our decision. 
it doesn't mean that we have to you know look under every rock and stare at it for three hours or something but like if somebody sends us an invention disclosure or a paper we try to get back to them you know in 24 to 48 hours at least with you know at a high level here's what we're going to do like go ahead and publish it we don't think this makes a lot of sense to file a patent on or please do whatever you can put the brakes on this for two weeks give us a little time to debrief and come up with a strategy so we try to keep people in the know um, as much as we can. It's really interesting hearing about all this stuff that goes on behind the scenes while you're yeah. just working away on the bench. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a whole nother, a whole nother dimension. Okay, so into a different dimension, what do you enjoy doing when you're not at Caliber and you're not at Scripps? Got any wild hobbies? Um, so you're talking about that 30 minutes a day when I'm not working. <laughs> yeah, that's a, there's a lot, um, lot to do there. Um, so I've got, I've got uh, a 13-month-old son who's kind of monopolizing all my time outside of work right now. So it's our first kid. And um, I've been doing a lot of customization of the house to make it what I would have liked to have when I was a kid. So, yeah. so um, and, and my, my father's a carpenter, so I know Ooh. quite a bit about, um, you know, fixing things up and customizing things. So my kid has one of the, I think he's the envy of all of his his uh, play date mates in terms of the size of his play area and the yeah I'm thinking swings bro swings slides fencing giant teddy bears you know suspended from the ceiling oh man can I come around so, yeah absolutely <laughs> we should make this a video cast next time this sounds fantastic okay so favorite part of the podcast my final roundup question so if you could give one piece of advice to anybody could be a scientist or maybe on the side of more business or maybe something completely general mm-hmm. Uh, what would it be in the realm of work, career progression, self-improvement? What do you think? Um, I think finding a job that you can really get totally immersed in is is really important. Um, and that's not everyone thinks that, but that that's that's my um, ethos. It, it's a little cliche to say find something you love to do or find something you're passionate about. I, I, I take a more pragmatic approach is, you know, find something that seems to keep you really excited and stimulated all the time. And you may not be doing that with a smile on your face all the time but you know find something that you wake up in the morning and you're like you're really thinking about what you're about to go do as opposed to you know um not wanting to go do it or thinking about when that thing is going to end or something it's that's been really important for me and kind of ironically keeping kind of a work-life balance so you know you still have to make time for for your um, family a lot of time Um, but you know finding a job that isn't just a job that's like something you have to do I think that's that's not the right way to approach it. You know, find something that you can really get excited about and um, just keep your brain cells firing all day. That's what's yeah. supposed to be keeping us alive and cognitive for many, many years yeah. going forward. So. Enjoy the process. Yeah. I love it. Sage advice as always here on the podcast. So I'd like to thank my guest, Matt, and we'll have his relevant scripts and caliber pages up in the show notes. And I'd love to hear from you guys out there on what you think of the podcast and what topics you might like to hear. Uh, You can shoot me an email and the podcast is up on iTunes now. So if you really love the show, please subscribe and leave a review. Uh, If you don't like the podcast, then there's no rush on leaving that review. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll be back in touch soon.